Did you know that it is um, campaign season? <laughs> Does anybody notice those signs going up? Door knockers? Oh my goodness, we've been getting so many door knockers, so many things shoved into our door. Um, so many campaign ads. Uh, basically everywhere you look, on your phone, on TV, whatever. Um, it is campaign season. It is politics season, right? And one of the reasons all of this information is out there is because there's, there's a lot of important stuff happening. There's a lot of important questions that we as a, a city, a, a state, a country are trying to answer. And, and we're trying to hit on these very important things like freedom and, uh, and taxes and um, equality and... Um, racism and entitlements and uh, all, all these really big questions, immigration, right? All these really big questions that we are trying to sort through together and, and having difficulty in many respects trying to come to agreement on. A difficulty might be an understatement, right? Um, and yet I think that with all of these questions, all of these things that we're, we're sorting through, I think there is one big question that kind of informs all of those and is informed by all of those. And the one big question that I think that we're, we're trying to, to answer and that we are constantly wrestling with is, what is America? What is an American? What does it mean to be an American? What is a nation even? This is the, the big question that kind of informs and is informed by all of those smaller questions. About 150 years ago, this, this French uh, philosopher named Ernest Renan. Anybody hear of Ernest Renan? One person. All right. Hey, I'm surprised. I'm impressed. All right. Uh, this, this French philosopher, Ernest Renan, tried to tackle that question, what is a nation? So uh, this is middle of the 19th century, uh, mid to late 19th century, and uh, the world is quickly modernizing and liberalizing, and empires are starting to break down, and, and suddenly this new category of political uh, affiliation, the way that people relate to one another, is coming on the scene called a nation. And, and so Ernest Renan is looking at this and trying to, to think through as the world is trying to think through what does this new alignment of people look like? What is it act how do we actually define it? Historically, people would organize around uh, dynasties, around family lines. You were a part of this group because you had the blood to be a part of this group. That wasn't the case any longer, at least in many places. Um, other people organized around race. Well, as, as the world continued to diversify and people moved from one place to another, nations weren't necessarily defined by race. Language was another one of these things. But again, more and more people, more and more movement, uh, individual nations could not be defined by language. Geography Geography didn't necessarily become the thing that defined a nation. And so as, as Ernest Renan is, is stepping back and, and looking at this globally, literally globally, he asks the question, what is a nation? And he delivers this lecture in the, the mid-19th uh, century, simply called, What is a Nation? And he says that a nation is a soul 
a spiritual principle, something with a past and present and future which people have to actively choose. It's not something that's a bloodline or has to do with race or religion or language. It's something that has to be actively chosen. And this is how he ends his lecture. This is what he says. A nation is therefore a large-scale solidarity constituted by the feeling of the sacrifices that one has made in the past and of those that one is prepared to make in the future. It presupposes a past. It is summarized, however, in the present by a tangible fact, namely consent, the clearly expressed desire to continue a common life. A nation's existence, if you will pardon the metaphor, is a daily plebiscite. That's another word for vote. Just as an individual's existence is a perpetual affirmation of life. A nation is solidarity, sacrifices, content, clearly expressed desire, common life, a daily plebiscite or vote, a perpetual affirmation of life. In short, a nation is a group of people making a commitment to people other than themselves and to a cause that is bigger than themselves. This is the organizing principle that says, hey, this is, this is how we come together as, and, and understand ourselves as a nation. Now, this idea of how do we relate to one another, how do we move forward with one another, this is obviously something that we are wrestling with here in the year 2022. This is something that Ernest Renan was wrestling with in Europe 150 years ago. And this is something that even the earliest followers of Jesus 2,000 years ago were wrestling with. Jesus' earliest followers, he had a couple dozen of them to begin with, men and women coming from all sorts of different places and, and following him around for several years, listening to everything that he said, watching everything that he did, trying to then implement and live out this way of life that he was talking about. And yet, if you looked at each of the individuals and like contrasted them to one another, just that small group of people was incredibly diverse. Uh, ideologically and politically, it's, it's possible, if not likely, that many of them, if they had just met each other on the street, would not get along, would fight with one another. Some of them literally might kill one another. That's the type of diversity that was just within this small group of people. And yet, in following him around, there was this sense of collective identity that they were able to shape with one another and choose and make that commitment to one another and to a cause that was bigger than themselves. And one of the places where we see this most readily is in the Gospel according to Matthew, one of uh, the four biographies about the life of Jesus, and we're going to look at uh, chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. Maybe this is a familiar story to you. When Jesus came to the area of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They answered, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, you are blessed, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, that you are Peter, 
and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you release on earth will have been released in heaven. Then he instructed his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. So just to step back a little bit, Jesus has been uh, traveling around the area. He's been teaching and preaching. More and more people are taking notice of him, and more and more people are coming to opinions about who he is and, and what he's about. Jesus isn't deaf to these opinions. And Jesus' followers aren't deaf to these opinions. They hear the rumors that are swirling, what people are saying about him. So in this moment, Jesus takes a step back, says to his, asks his closest followers, what do you hear folks saying about me? And they start laying out, well, here's what some of the people that we hear the rumors of, this is what they think about you, this is who they, they think you are. But then Jesus asks a follow-up question, a much more direct question. He says, all right, well, those are the rumors that are swirling, but I want to know about you. Who do you say that I am? And here Peter, one of Jesus' closest followers, one of these guys who's become among his inner circle, speaks up and says, you are the Christ. Now, Christ, you, you might not know this, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Anybody know that? So Christ is actually a title, is a title given to uh, this long-awaited king of Israel, the one who was going to be functioning uh, as, as God's representative in the world. And so after all this time of following Jesus around, listening to what other people have said, seeing what he does, seeing what he says, Peter is able to say, you know what? I'm convinced that you are the Christ. You are this one that we have been waiting for. He steps out and makes that confession, makes that commitment even. And when he does that, Jesus responds a little bit strangely. He says, Peter, can you go to that? So that I think it's the last slide. I want to be able to read it directly. Uh, uh, next one. Second to last one. Thank you, Greg. You are the Christ. I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So the question is, what is the rock? There's a lot of scholarly debate about what the rock is or who the rock is. And there's actually entire traditions that say that the rock is actually Peter. Uh, Peter, the name Peter, literally means rock. So up until this point, his name has been Simon. But when he makes this declaration, when he says, you are the Christ, Jesus gives him this nickname, and he says, Simon, you are now Peter, the rock. And so it's, it's been, for many traditions, this idea that it is Peter who is the rock, and it is on Peter and Peter's direct followers that Jesus is going to build his church. And so the image that is maybe conveyed of the rock of Peter is something like this. The rock. We got Peter, the rock, right? Um, I'm not so convinced of this. Um, 
part of it is because we know a lot about Peter, and uh, the images that we get of Peter look a little bit more like this. Obviously, that's, that's not perfect. That doesn't fully define who he is or, or what he did. But, but then there's like the larger context, right? Peter isn't given this title. He, his name isn't changed until after he makes that confession, until after he makes that commitment. It's not until after that. Uh, Peter doesn't uh, magically change in that moment. He doesn't say these magic words that, that suddenly transform him, that, that suddenly make him uh, in this position where he's got it all figured out and then everything is now going to rest on him and his followers. It's about that commitment. So the rock on which Jesus is going to build the church is not just on Peter and Peter's followers, but it is on that unique, verbal confession and commitment that the the foundation on which we're building is jesus and that confession that 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 step of making that verbal commitment is the thing that is important and on which everything else is going to be built peter's been following him around for years he's been somewhat committed to this guy and yet in that moment, it was like the formal act of making that commitment when things really started to change. That commitment was important for Peter. It was important for him to, to say that for himself. You know what? I've been following this guy around for a while, and now I'm going to take that additional step in claiming this is who I believe this person is and my commitment to him and his mission in the world. It was important for the other followers of Jesus, too, to hear Peter say that. They had maybe been thinking those things as well. They may have been towing the line and thinking, oh, do we really want to make that commitment? It becomes that much easier now that Peter has done it, too. If he can do it, I guess I can, too. And then that commitment was important for Jesus to hear as well, because when he hears Peter say that thing, he's then able to say, all right, now we got it. Now we have something to work with. Again, this isn't like a magical phrase that Peter says where everything changes. Nothing magical happens to Peter. And in fact, just two verses later, two verses later, Peter starts fighting with Jesus and Jesus calls him Satan. Read it. It's true. Not great. So the point isn't that suddenly magically something changes when he uses these words. It's about that act of ongoing commitment and saying, I am um, I'm committing to something and someone or a group of people that is larger and, and bigger and more important than just me. The reason this confession was important was because it was important to Peter, it was important to the other followers of Jesus, and it was important to Jesus himself. That word commitment, especially around faith um, and the church, you might have some sort of feeling when you hear that word commitment. And, and so I just want to acknowledge the feelings that some of you might have when you hear that word commitment and 
we want you to make a commitment. On the one hand, you might be completely new to this church thing. You might be completely new to this following Jesus thing even. You've come here, you've enjoyed what you've, you've seen and how you've participated here at the Grove. Uh, you, you like the people, you like the energy, you, you like the music, you like all of the stuff that's going on for kids. You tolerate the guy who gets up and talks for 20 minutes. To then move to a commitment to following Jesus and being a part of this church, that might feel like a really huge thing for you. Some of you may have been a part of the church before, been a part of faith before, and you might have preconceived notions or experiences around commitment and, and what that has meant historically. Um, you might, like me, have this idea that commitment was this thing where you accepted Jesus into your heart. And that commitment might also raise within you these experiences like I had of thinking that it was like a magical thing that you had to say right in order to, to be right and being a terrified little kid every single night wondering if you said the right words at the right time and whether you were going to be okay. And so the idea of making a commitment or even that word commitment might be a, a major red flag for you. And then there might be others of you who have been a part of church all along, don't have that baggage, but you have shown up faithfully, done all of the things that have been asked of you, and the idea of making another commitment, another verbal commitment uh, to take the next step might be like, I I've been showing up. I want to acknowledge that all of those, those reactions to either the word commitment or the idea of commitment are valid. And what we're not talking about here we are, are not talking about you having to have everything figured out. We are not talking about making a commitment to avoid hellfire and brimstone. We are not talking about ignoring all of your faithfulness in the time up until now. What we talk about when we talk about commitment and recommitment is taking the next right step in the journey of following Jesus wherever you might find yourself. Which I think brings us right back to that definition of a nation that Ernest Renaud, Renan gave. And I think if we just tweak the words a tiny bit, it fits really well for what it means for us to commit as individual followers of Jesus and as a church. So again, back to that quote, changing out the word for nation. Following Jesus is therefore a large-scale solidarity constituted by the feeling of sacrifices that one has made in the past and of those that one is prepared to make in the future. It presupposes a past. It is summarized, however, in the present by a tangible fact, namely consent, the clearly expressed desire to continue a common life. A church's existence, if you will pardon the metaphor, is a daily plebiscite of vote, just as an individual's existence is a perpetual affirmation of life solidarity, sacrifices, consent, clearly expressed desire, common life, a daily plebiscite of vote, a perpetual affirmation of life. 
if you're in the spot where you have been around this place and you are now at the point where you're like, I'm ready to commit to saying, I think this way of following Jesus is for me, we want to celebrate that. If you are, are in this place where you have been around for a while and you have embraced this, this church as your own and you're like, well, now I think that I want to make that, that, that commitment, take that step of saying, I'm going to become a partner. We want to acknowledge and celebrate that commitment. If you have been faithful your whole life, been a part of a church your entire life, and now are at the point where like, I want to take the next step of upping my commitment. We want to acknowledge and celebrate that, know about that. I'm so happy, so thrilled to be a part of this group, to be a part of this journey with all of you, to be a part of this pathway with all of you. And so wherever you find yourself, wherever we find ourselves in this pathway, may we, like Peter, making his confession, making his commitment, take that step, that next right step, that formal acknowledgement of commitment, and may we do so for ourselves. May we do so for each other as a church. And may we do so for God as well. And may that be so. Mm -hmm.